Welcome to this episode of Halftime Scholars, the series that features the interesting work of independent and emerging researchers. I'm your host Suren. Chronic respiratory disorders like asthma affect around 600 million people worldwide. Although these illnesses are widespread, they can have several different underlying causes, making them difficult to treat. On this episode, we chat with William Ray, a researcher from the University of Newcastle, whose work focuses on integrating statistical genetics with systems biology to further our knowledge of the biological processes involved in complex disorders and how this could be leveraged for treatment in the future. William, welcome to Halftime Scholars. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. What was your research journey like before your PhD? What was your work like and uh, how did it uh, come up to this stage? Yeah, so I guess I was always really interested in science, even as like a relatively small child, but I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. I just kind of knew I wanted to do science. So in high school, I did a lot of science subjects and I still wasn't really 100% sure what I wanted to do when I finished high school, but I was very interested in the human body and biology. So I did a degree called biomedical science for my undergraduate, which also was very broad. We kind of learnt about all different systems in the body, how to treat various diseases, kind of some fundamental biology about how our cells work, really a whole range of things. So I guess because it was so broad, I kind of was exposed to a lot of different things. And it really, just to be honest, that going into genetics was just purely because the opportunity was there. In, our, in the third year of our course, we had to do a research placement where we like worked in the lab of someone at the university or at the institute that we work at. And I just happened to like the sound of a project about genetics. And just by pure chance, I really enjoyed it. And that's how really I think I ended up staying on with genetics because I didn't really plan to go into research or I liked the idea of research, but it wasn't my number one goal when I started uni. But as soon as I got into research, I liked it. So I continued on after I finished my undergraduate. And that's why I, I ended up doing a PhD. So from that point onwards, you said uh, you stumbled across genetics. So what inspired you? What about that uh, placement and that work really inspired you to study the relationship between genetics and biology and treating or they treat disorders? I think it was because genetics was a lot more complicated than I thought it was. Often what we kind of learn about genetics at school, and even to be honest, at university in a lot of biology courses is kind of a very simplified version of genetics. But what I found was that genetics actually really affects pretty much every single human disease in some way, and even pretty much every single human trait. So I guess I didn't quite realize how complicated and how kind of multifaceted, I guess, lack of a better word, genetics was, like how many different ways genetics can affect something how many different types of genetic variants or changes in the DNA there are. So I guess that it was just how complex it was that really took me a bit by surprise once I kind of got into researching it. And that's why I like it because it's something you can apply to many different areas. So you can use genetics to help discover drugs, to help treat disease, to help identify what could cause a disease. And I just really liked how versatile and how kind of exciting genetics is because of, you know, the fact that's involved in so many different things. As you mentioned, uh, the application that genetics has, it, it impacts all our lives and uh, in different ways. So if you can maybe 
walk us through a little bit more specifically about this area of study that you started with? I understand it's a larger project, but how does that break down? Yeah, so when I first started, I actually was working on the genetics of schizophrenia, which as a lot of people probably aware is a psychiatric disorder and a very severe psychiatric disorder, which unfortunately really impairs people's quality of life. And it is a disorder which has a very large genetic contribution, more so than actually a lot of other disorders, common disorders. So I started working in schizophrenia. And when I very first started in research, I, I was and I still am very passionate about schizophrenia, but I was really kind of laser focused on schizophrenia when I first started. I was really fascinated by the disorder. And also, as I kind of just mentioned, how complicated the genetics were, because, you know, often when people think of genetics, they still think of a single gene. So people will talk about, for example, the cancer gene. So BRCA, you know, Angelina Jolie made very famous. She had a double mastectomy because she had a BRCA1 variant, which is increases your risk of breast cancer. So a lot of people think about genetics in much simpler terms. And in some cases, genetics is quite simple, but not very often. And schizophrenia is an example of an incredibly complicated disease from a genetics perspective. You know, there's hundreds of genes involved, if not thousands, and they all interact in different ways. So I started in schizophrenia and I did a few projects in that. But what I kind of found was that the skills and the techniques we were using in schizophrenia were actually applicable to many other disorders. And then I really, as my PhD went on, I branched out into different areas of medicine because I felt that in a way I needed to do that to fully, to fully use the skills I was learning and like get the most, get the most really meaningful results. Because one, I guess, unfortunate thing about brain disorders is that the brain is still quite poorly understood compared to a lot of other organs in the body. So Whilst it's really good to research brain disorders, it also can be frustrating because it takes a long time to make progress. But when I went into, for example, respiratory medicine, which I did a study on in my PhD, I found that because the lungs are better understood, the results we, we, we got kind of seemed like we made more progress than we could in schizophrenia. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep researching brain disorders. It just means that it is a lot more difficult. So I guess that, yeah, really schizophrenia is how I started out and then branched more into other disorders as time went on. So that seems a very interesting journey. And I think what came to my mind was when you started in, we'll say, researching brain disorders, specifically schizophrenia, and then moved on to the respiratory disorders, from a, we'll say, from a PhD point of view, from a, we'll say, a technical point of view, how does that transition come about? And when you make an application for a PhD, you have to go through certain processes and meet certain eligibility criteria. How does that fit into the work that you have done or in the earlier part to, to enter that specific course? Yeah, I think that most of the time it's very difficult to transition from like one complete disease area to another. But genetics is a bit of an exception to that because Really, the, the core genetics techniques I was researching and developing, which is what my project was about, can be applied to pretty much any disorder. And in a way, it's kind of like, obviously, when you interpret the results, you need understanding of, you know, the organ or the disorder you're dealing with, but actually doing the genetics, like, you know, understanding the data and analyzing the data is really the same process practically for any disorder you're doing. So because of that, it's not like if you're working in the lab hands-on, you have to learn how to work with, like, let's say you're doing something in a, in a mouse, so you're doing a mouse experiment. 
if you're working with something to do with the brain, that can be completely different than doing research on the lungs. And that would be quite a difficult transition. What's good with genetics is that it's really easy to do other disorders. So, you know, my PhD, I did, as I mentioned, respiratory. I did some cardiac related stuff, other psychiatric disorders besides schizophrenia. And since I've finished my PhD, I've started the project on a few other different diseases as well, just because I can use the same methods and just apply them to different disorders. Obviously, you do need to learn about the disorder, but that's when you can work with other people as well. So you can, for example, I work with clinicians who work in those fields and they can help me interpret the results and I can kind of give them the data so that we can kind of work collaboratively. So I think that that's one thing I like about genetics is really that ability to be flexible and not be stuck on a single thing because it's, you know, it's really broadly applicable. Just another question came to mind, which I'd like to pick up on was you mentioned of the broad applicability. It's the same, the same model or framework. Maybe for the benefit of our the listeners, if you can uh, maybe give us a, a broad idea of what are some of these broad applicable principles. Yeah, I guess I'll just highlight two which come to mind. One is, I guess, trying to understand what genetic variants, and by that I mean, so usually your DNA has a particular sequence. So you'll have, you know, A, T, G, C are the four different, what's called a nucleotide that makes up your DNA. And if they change, you can get like a change from one part of the code to another. We call that a variant. So basically just think of it as a change in DNA. So what we can do, we basically can identify changes in the DNA associated with a particular disease. What I mean by that is we can find changes in the DNA that occur more frequently in people who go on to develop a particular disease, or maybe they occur less frequently. So they can either increase risk or they can be protective. So how we do that is we get big cohorts or big studies of people who have the disease and those which don't. You can also do this for things which everyone has, like blood pressure, you can measure blood pressure. We uh, obtain genetic data for those individuals and we then use statistical modeling to try and work out which changes in the DNA happen more readily and which happen less frequently or those which could be protective. And because we know what genes those changes in the DNA are in, we can actually use that to gain some insight into what could be potentially causing the disorder or what could be contributing to the disorder. So that same approach of collecting people's genetic data and then modeling the, you know, how the, vet, how the changes in the DNA occur really can be applied to any disorder. So it's the same basic technique. You just collect the data, you look at the people, what, how they have their clinical data, how they, whether they have the disease or not, and then you can look at where the changes in the DNA are, what genes they affect. So that's one way where it's the same approach and it can be used for practically anything. And that is called a genome-wide association study or a GWAS, which is a term, if you Google genetics, that's something which will come up probably relatively quickly because it's a very kind of famous technique now in genetics. The second one I'll just quickly highlight, which I think is really interesting, is the idea of using genetics to try and identify people at higher risk of a particular disorder. So what I just talked about was trying to understand how the disorder may be caused by genetics or how genetics contributes to the disorder. We can also use genetics basically to identify which individuals may be at higher risk or actually at lower risk. So we can basically score them based on certain changes in the DNA a person has, we'll put them at higher or lower risk. 
And this is useful because we can potentially could use that to kind of intervene earlier in people or maybe even identify treatments which could work better for particular individuals. And once again, that same approach where we, it's called polygenic risk scoring, if you want to Google it, I mean, you'll find a lot, there's been a lot of media coverage of that in the last 24 months. That can be also applied to practically any disorder, any disease you're interested in. So those two approaches, the genome-wide association study and polygenic risk scoring, it's the same technique, but can be applied to many different things, which I think is really fascinating. And there's so many other examples I could go through. Obviously, I won't for time, but I, I think that really goes for most things in genetics, that, that they can be used for multiple different, well, not multiple, practically any disorder you can use them for or disease. That's really interesting and quite fascinating. As, as you mentioned, uh, especially over the COVID period, uh, we've been hearing about genome sequencing and a lot more of these very technical terms in the in the media as well. Uh, if we stay on your project for a little while, so we have the biology component as well, as well as the respiratory disorders component. So when you moved along through that study, what, is, what are some of the findings and how did the biology component combine into this overall study that you completed? Yeah, well, in terms of the, the paper we did on, so we've done kind of two, or me personally, I've done two studies on respiratory related diseases, one on just uh, the function of the lung. So every person's lung will function differently. They'll have, you know, a greater ability or a lesser ability for their lungs to, you know, circulate air and other gases. And we can actually measure that by what's called spirometry. And you might not have heard of the name, but you probably would recognize that you saw a picture because it's basically where you blow into a tube at the doctor's office and you do certain exercises, like you'll blow as long as you can or you'll blow for a certain number of seconds. And based on how much air you blow out or how long you blow for, you can calculate how, how well a person's lungs are functioning. And that measurement, which is like a continuous measurement, so it ranges you know, from X to Y, is a heavily influenced by genetics, how well a person's lung functions. So we did a study looking at kind of the genetic factors associated or which affect how well a person's lung, lungs would function. And we specifically were interested in trying to identify way, new ways we could help increase people's lung function. So one thing that was a big part of my project was what's called drug repurposing. It's basically where you use a drug that already exists for a new purpose. So a really well-known example of that is the a slightly crude example, but it's a well-known example is Viagra actually was a blood pressure drug before it was now used for the erectile dysfunction. And that there's many, many other examples like that where the drug is used for something and then they'll actually find you can use it for something else as well. So we wanted to use genetics to kind of help us try and find some examples where we could you know use drugs that already exist in a way to help Im improve people's lung function and what we actually found was that there was actually quite strong evidence that people's blood sugar so how high or low you know your sugar levels are in your blood actually would affect your lungs in a, in a negative way so having really high blood sugar we found genetic evidence suggests that would actually negatively affect how well your lungs function and that had kind of been speculated before and it had been shown in cohort studies, but no one had ever found concrete genetic evidence. And the genetic evidence is really good because it's very rigorous and it's done on very big samples, like a very good form of evidence to have. So as a result of that, we concluded that potentially drugs which lower blood sugar, so like diabetes drugs, things like that, could be useful 
to also improve uh, the function of the lung. And we can look at that biologically as well, because having high blood sugar can make more inflammation. So you can have more inflammation in the lungs from a result of having high blood sugar. It can also make the lungs stiffer. So they just don't, you know, contract as well to, to breathe. And yeah, I think that was really probably the, the, the really interesting finding. And whilst how we found that actually is quite complicated, what I love about genetics is that the overall message is it's quite simple. We found from that. It's a very sophisticated way we model that relationship. And we're also actually were able, which is really interesting, to not only suggest that these drugs which lower blood sugar could be useful to improve people's lung function, we also identified how we could, we could predict which individuals would respond best to that treatment. So it might be that if you treat people who have high blood, pressure, high blood sugar or give them one of these drugs, its effect on lung function probably won't be the same for everyone because you know everyone's different. So in that study, we also looked at trying to not only identify this new treatment, but also identify which individuals are going to respond best based on their genetics. So that was, yeah, the main, there were actually quite a few other things as well, but that was the main, I think, finding that really interested me from, from that study, I'd say. Fascinating to know the exact scientific process of following that. And as you mentioned, uh, it could be a complicated way of actually doing the study, but the message it quite, it is impactful. If I can delve a little bit again on this specific question as well. So that you have that specific finding, plus there were others as well. This question is more related to the, the idea of rigor and peer reviews and getting your work published, not only in terms of publications, but you know that process of the findings and then making it accessible to relevant audiences. If you can maybe walk us through that, that kind of steps and the, some of the steps that you all had to go through to get it uh, recognized and validated. Yeah, sure. So, so in my PhD, I was lucky enough to, to publish quite a few studies. I think I have six in total where I was the lead author, um, but they all followed a similar process. So basically, you know, we, we, we do the study and sometimes, you know, you do a study and you have a lot of data, you need to kind of decide then what do we want to communicate firstly to other scientists? Because when we publish research, our primary audience is always other scientists. It's not our only audience, but it is our, our primary audience. So we have to decide, well, what is the most important things in this study? What do we really want to highlight? And from there, we kind of write a study, like a research study describing the findings. And that usually will just talk about the findings, the methods we used, but also we'll discuss the limitations and the strengths of the study and how the, what we found could be then further investigated or applied further. So once that's actually written, a new trend, at least in my field in, in biological science, is that before we submit it to be peer-reviewed, we post it on what's called a preprint server. And I think preprint servers have gotten a bit of publicity because a lot of COVID-related studies have gone up on preprint servers and gotten a lot of media attention very quickly. So basically how that works is that you could, it's not, checked by anyone or any other scientist, but it means that you can instantly share your work with the rest of the scientific community. So they're called, one of them is called BioArchive and the other one's called MedArchive. So you can submit a paper and it will instantly in a couple of days be posted on their, on their website. So anyone can look at it for free. That's really good. The downside to that just in general is that it's not peer reviewed. So you do have to be mindful when you're looking at, at, at work on a preprint server that whilst it could be the best study of all time, 
it hasn't been peer reviewed. So unfortunately, as a quick sidebar, in COVID, there's been a lot of studies posted on preprint servers, which have been less than good from a rigor perspective, but the media will just see them and just run with them like it's, you know, that is definitely 100% fact. That's the downside, but the real upside is that you can really quickly share your work. And the reason why that is an upside is that getting peer reviewed can take quite a long time, particularly during COVID because, you know, people have delayed and, you know, things have just been delayed. So after we, we, we post on the preprint server, we then submit to a journal that we would like to get published in. And they'll either say, no, we're not, we're not doing it for whatever reason, or yes, we're going to send it out to peer review to other scientists to review. Sometimes you can give them some suggestions, what peer reviewers you think would be good. Sometimes they'll just completely, you know, take it on their own behalf to do it. You never usually know who ends up reviewing your paper. Sometimes they will identify themselves, but often they won't. And then you'll get kind of feedback from this other scientists who uh, reviewed your, your study. And Oliver will say positive things or negative things about it. And as long as they say enough positive things that the journal thinks it's worth moving forward, what you then have to do is then respond to the feedback from the other scientists and make any changes to the study that, you know, are warranted. So for example, let's say I'll, I'll use an example from, from one of mine. I had a comment saying, oh, you didn't really explain this method well enough. I need more details. So that was an instance where I'd say, okay, yep, that's a fair comment. I'll, I added some more details. Here's what they were. Sometimes we get comments which you really disagree with and you're allowed to say, well, no, I disagree with that because, and, you know, give evidence. And I've had times where they've said, oh, what you've said here is wrong. And I've disagreed and said, no, I disagree because X, Y, Z. And then I've been, I was, the editor sided with me basically. So it kind of just goes both ways. Sometimes you, you do actually take on the feedback and it's really helpful. Sometimes they might get it wrong and it can be a bit frustrating because you think you did it, especially when they didn't read it properly. Sometimes you'll find people, they'll say you didn't do something that actually is in the study. So that could just be either they didn't read it or you didn't communicate it well enough or maybe a bit of both. So once you, that can happen a couple of times, that feedback process where, you know, you respond to their comments, they might then read the paper again and come back. And usually it's only once and it can be more than that. And as long as you do, if you do enough to satisfy the editor of the journal who's handling your paper, it will then will be published in an official journal, which is usually pretty much the same thing that was published on the, on the preprint server, but often it'll have like formatting changes and you will, as I said, make edits and additions through the review process. So that's yeah, the general overview of how it goes from doing the study to getting it getting it published. If we, I, I just had a couple of other things to pick up on. You mentioned during COVID and also there's a preprint server where media might pick things up. And also you mentioned that scientists are primarily uh, your largest audience that you might communicate to. But when you're communicating to other stakeholders, how do you change your communication approach and what methods do you adopt? I think, well, it kind of depends a little bit on the stakeholder. For the general public, I'd say it's really, as I kind of mentioned earlier, you don't focus on the how, it's more about the, the what and the why. So, you know, you find something of interest and need to communicate that in as simple terms as possible. But at the end of the day, the average person does not care about how you found that out. I mean, obviously, people would probably be interested if they talked to you about it, but just reading something 
they don't, they don't want to know all this detail about statistical modeling and genetics and they just don't care. So I think that if I, when I'm ever writing something for the general public or we, like a, a lay person, for lack of a better word, then it's just really focusing on more so what we found and just broadly talking about the fact that, you know, it's genetics and not really focusing on details. If I'm talking to sign of maybe a medical professional, for example, someone who isn't in research, obviously then I can be a bit more technical, but still I won't really focus in on the, on the methods of details because if you're a doctor treating a patient, you, you care about how a study came to its conclusion. That is important because you need to assess whether you're going to take this seriously or not. But your main concern is what does it mean for patients? So if you're talking to, to clinicians or doctors, you really, you orientate it more about, well, this is important for patients because X, Y, Z. So I think that, yeah, it's more just knowing who your audience is and not getting bogged down in methods. And often when I've seen some scientists try to communicate with the public and not do it very effectively, it's because they the try to explain too much what the methods are. And it's it's not easy. I mean, I, I'm sure I, there's so many people who, who do it better than I do, definitely. Like, I don't even think I'm necessarily that good at it, to be honest. But I think that when I do try and do it, I do try and focus more on the outcomes rather than fixating on the methods. Although it's nice to explain a little bit, just yeah, not to get too obsessed with that when you're trying to communicate to a general audience. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting and uh, very constructive strategy to use to uh, get uh, your message across. I guess, uh, William, moving on to maybe the latter half of our uh, podcast today. So through your research journey, uh, what were some of the broad challenges you faced and was there anything that surprised you? I'd say challenges, the doing things I never thought I would do. So my, my background is mostly in biology and medical science, but a lot of genetics actually involves doing quite a bit of coding and using computers and like very powerful computing to be able to analyze genetics data. So I had no experience coding at all before I started that, that project placement I, I mentioned earlier where I very first started out with genetics. I'd never done it before. And I really just taught myself as the years went on how to do it. And now I'm actually quite good at it. So that was something which I never thought I would have to, have to do, but it just is kind of a necessary thing for doing genetics research, at least the type, kind of genetics that I do at least. Um, is you need to be able to work with large data sets. To do that, you need to be able to write scripts and things like that or you know use computers effectively so that was probably a challenge ever really think until I really got into it if that makes sense and that was also I guess a surprise it was a surprise and a challenge but I think that it was a good challenge in the end because I did overcome it probably something which was a not so good challenge was I didn't quite realize how how much of research is just organizing and planning and I guess that my thought about research was that you just do the study and you publish the results or you communicate the results and that's it. But there's so much, I'm sure you know, of planning things, dealing with people, responding to emails, setting up things. And then when even you're publishing, dealing with the, the comments. And it's just, there is a really a lot of work just behind the scenes, for lack of a better word. So actually in my average week, I'd say that, you know, at least 30% of my time was coordinating and planning because you need to do that. Otherwise, the research just doesn't happen. So that was something that is a challenge and it was also yeah, also a surprise, I guess, as well, because I wasn't really expecting it to be so much. I think I've definitely gotten better at it as the years went on, but that was definitely something I wasn't expecting, I'd say. I guess the last thing I'd say in terms of a surprise was how much you really 
think of things differently as you go throughout the process of research. So the way I, I thought about things, certain topics when I started in terms of not only just to do with genetics, just generally, I think change so much as you get new experiences throughout doing research. You meet a lot of people in research and you talk to a lot of people and you read the opinions and the perspectives of a lot of people. So you evolve as time goes on. So I really was surprised how much just learn even not directly about genetics in my case. Like you just learn a lot about the world and about how things work, a lot of life skills, like that organization and teamwork stuff I was just talking about. It's like an added benefit of doing research. You do learn a lot about how you work and how you work with others. Lots of challenges, but I'm sure you've uh, been able to navigate them through successfully. Um, I guess the last couple of questions I have was been in research now for many years, uh, but outside of the world of research, when you take off your research hat, uh, what do you do in your spare time? I guess because I spend a lot of time indoors researching, so sitting at the computer all day, I do like to try and do a lot of outdoors things when I'm not researching. So I really love going out into nature and going hiking and walking and things like that. That's always been something I've loved my entire life. So any opportunity I, I have to do that, I really, I really like to. And similar, also, I really like playing tennis. So that's another thing. Just I really try and get outside as much as I can when I have my spare time. So I do spend five days a week, nine to five, in front of a computer in my office. So it is really, I guess, yeah, trying to get outside as much as I can. I like reading and I play the guitar and a couple other things like that. But really, yeah, trying to do as much outdoors. I think it's really healthy when you spend a lot of time sitting down or inside like, like I do. You need to have that balance as well. William, I guess my final question is, you have graduated recently. Where is your work currently heading and what sort of projects are you working on at the moment? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm really excited because I think that the next couple of years are going to be more about taking what we've learned through, through my work, trying to use that in practice. So we, we're planning to do a clinical trial, for example, trying to implement some of the things we've found and some of the techniques we've been working on. So I think that's really exciting for me. I've never been involved in a clinical trial before. So that's going to be, you know, obviously I'm not a medical doctor, so I won't be physically dealing with patients, but I'll be, you know, working with the data we collect from the clinical trial. So that's really exciting. As well, just working on new diseases and new projects. So my my, my lab has funding to, to work on a disease called neurofibromatosis, which actually is a rare disease, but it's a really, really, really quite bad disease where characterized by people getting these tumors all throughout their body. And it's a really yeah, nasty disease, doesn't have many good treatments. So we're going to do a, a genetic study, a more expansive genetic study on that disease. And that's really exciting because it hasn't really been done very much before using the type of genetics methods that we use. And hopefully that can actually reveal some insights as to what causes neurofibromatosis and how we could maybe use that to get some treatments to help people. And I think I'm really excited about that because it just hasn't really been, it hasn't been studied enough because it is a rarer disease. So it doesn't get a lot of attention, but it is, you know, for people who have it, it, it really affects their lives. So yeah, I'd say they're kind of the two main things I'm really excited about is doing some new diseases and some diseases that haven't been studied as much and also the ability to work to try and translate, for lack of a better word, what I've found. And we're also doing some projects with some pharmaceutical companies to try and look at also working with them to help translate some of the things they're doing. So yeah, they're really, I guess, the main things I'm, I'm excited about going forward.
Yeah, that looks like quite a lot on your plate and very interesting directions. So we'd like to thank you, William, for joining Halftime Scholars and wish you all the best in all of these projects. And thank you again for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Cheers. That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. If you like us, give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and join us for the next episode.